Grow, baby, grow. I think that accurately summarizes the mantra of any technology startup. We know from the TSI Cloud 40 Index that the rule of 40 companies, companies that are unprofitable, but are growing at more than 40% a year, get the highest market valuations. But growth is expensive. SaaS companies in the Cloud 40 Index spend on average 37% of total revenue on sales and marketing expenses. What if you could reduce those costs through a concept called customer-led growth? I'm Tom Long, the Executive Director of the Technology and Services Industry Association. Welcome to Tectonic, the podcast where we explore what makes technology business models successful in today's world. In this episode, I will be speaking with Chris Hicken, who is the CEO and co-founder of NuffSed, a company focused on this concept of customer-led growth. And for those listeners not familiar with TSIA, we are a for-profit research institute. We track the financial performance of the largest publicly traded technology providers on the planet. More importantly, we perform deep operational benchmarking with the technology companies that are on the TSIA platform. It is that data that informs the insights you will hear in this series. So let's get into it. And Chris, before we talk about customer-led growth, I, I wanted to discuss uh, a topic we typically don't cover on Tectonic, but it's a topic of a life at a startup that did become public. And I would love to pick your brain on this topic since you had direct battle scars at a company, I think, I think it was named User Testing, uh, where you were uh, president and COO. And the first question I have for the framing here is, is how long was the journey for that company to go from formation to actually you know, the public offering? Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me on the episode today, Thomas. I think we're going to have a fun conversation today. So user testing was founded in 2007. It really got going in 2008. I joined the company in 2010. I was employee number five at the company and it went public in 2021. So it was about a 13, 14 year journey from founding to going public. And this is obviously all after the dot-com bubble. And so you guys were coming that, that sort of that next generation. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. And, and just for context, for people know what, you know, what is this user testing company? So um, user testing is a company that makes it crazy easy to record videos of people interacting with your product. So this oh, could be your website, website, yeah. your mobile app. You can even send people into your store if you want. Yeah. So, and the way that it works is, is user testing has an enormous community of people where you can hire people on demand and then get videos back in like an hour. So it's really oh, wow. fast. Oh, fancy. Uh, yeah. And look, our, our take was always, you can't consider yourself a customer-centric co- company unless you're building alongside your customers or potential customers. Yeah, yeah so. that makes sense. Yeah, very interesting. And so, and, and again, successfully made it out, which, which obviously a lot of startups don't get there. Um, and so let, let's talk about that journey in terms of the, the pressure to grow and, and what I see from the TSI perspective when we have... Uh, you know, younger, smaller companies that we work with, you know, this mantra of, of growth a, a, at any cost, right? So, so when you were the president and COO, how, how did you balance that between, you know, we want to grow, but there's also cash flow. There are cost components here. What were the bumpers that you used? It, well, you have to remember back in 2010, that was a time when investors were valuing, you know, gro- growth really was the single factor that mm-hmm. Wall Street was using to value SaaS companies. So it really yeah. was a growth at any cost mentality. And the way that the CEO and I divided up responsibilities was, you know, Daryl, CEO, brilliant product visionary. He spent most of his time 
on product and engineering, I spent most of my time on go to market. So mm -hmm. I oversaw sales, marketing, customer success, you know, services. Yep. We, we tag teamed on finance and people. And so um, in, in the early days, investors almost never asked us about our retention rates. Um, <laughs> that just, isn't that wild? I'm sorry, I'm sorry. That's just <laughs> stunning. That is stunning. Yeah. So, yeah. but you know, having said that, we took a very cautious approach to fundraising because we wanted to control the company we wanted to control our destiny. So mm -hmm. our bumpers were that we said after every round we raised, we wanted to get the company to profitability. And in order to do that, we had to look really closely at the unit economics of the business and make sure that they made sense. What, what I mean by that is we're looking at cost efficient, retention, we're looking at our variable margins, we're looking at what our cost was to build and maintain the product at kind of the cutting edge. And then, of course, GNA. And we were a unique company in terms of managing, you know, profitability, we were a unique company in the sense that we had two costs that most other companies don't have to think about. The first one is, you know, we talked about this concept of a user test, right? We're, we're recording videos of people doing things with your product. Mm -hmm. So we had to pay those people to do things. Right. So there's this payment labor, of the, yeah. the labor, right? So we had to pay for every user test that's completed. So that adds some complication. The other thing was, and I think a lot of uh, entrepreneurs listening into this call will appreciate this. In the early days, the product couldn't do all the things that we promised it would. Mm -hmm. So we ended up having to throw people at the problem. Yeah. 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 Yep. So we, we built a lot of professional services around yeah. things the product couldn't do. And we actually ended up building a pretty significant uh, professional services slash research team. And you know the, the product promise was that we would have gong-like features that would scan a video and automatically detect interesting moments. Mm -hmm. Product couldn't do that in the early days. So we would have a person watch your videos for you. They would figure out what the trends were and then surface it up for you in the form of a really nice report. So it actually turned out that humans were much better at it than computers anyway. So that ended up being a good move. Oh, that's but fascinating. That, but part of like this, you know, how we built the company was around, uh, even though investors wanted us to grow at any cost, we still managed around profitability. And so, and man, you put some really good things on the table there. And, and I'm going to go back to the PS thing. So, so you needed to apply, right, professionals to, to, to basically close the gap, deliver the value proposition. Were you monetizing that with customers, that labor, or, or I mean, or did you just kind of throw, I mean, how did you navigate that? Yeah, we, we, we weren't monetizing for a long time. And the reason was, at least at the time, Wall Street was very concerned about professional services, heavy companies. Yep. So we didn't want to be perceived as a, you know, kind of like a tech enabled services company. At the time, Salesforce had a benchmark of 20% revenue from services yeah. was about the highest that Wall Street would, would tolerate. Yeah, would tolerate. So we were you know, kind of targeting something around 15%. So in the early days, we were not monetizing the research team very much. Later, as we grew and we saw the value of the team, especially in enterprise, we did start to monetize more, but we kind of carefully managed around that 15% number to make sure that we had a healthy, you know, the, the bulk of our revenue was coming from software rather than services. Yeah, so let me react to that a little bit. So, so first of all, I think this benchmark, you know, less than 20% coming from project-based activity or, you know, labor-intensive activity like professional services, that makes sense. I mean, because if it becomes 30, 40, 50%, you don't look like a technology software company more. You look like a consulting company that has some tools, right? So totally, A, get that. That's the right mentality. Um, but, but, and we still we see this to this day, 
the, the, the extreme end of that, where it's just like, just throw it at the customer. Don't worry about, you know, the value proposition of trying to monetize anything, you know, don't worry, we'll make it up in volume in the long term. It is a losing strategy. I'm sorry. You know, it's a, because you, you know, and you said this, but by focusing on profitability, we were able to control our destiny. And I think you see these companies that are unprofitable. They got to keep taking on more investors, keep the looting, keep the looting, and wake up one morning and you say, I, I don't control my destiny, right? Yeah, okay. The good news is I grew. The bad news is I didn't make any, you know, didn't do it profitably and I'm completely diluted out of this thing. Yeah, I haven't, I haven't built a sustainable business and no, my investors right. on my company. That's yeah. that's what you wake up to if you're not careful. Yeah, and, and so I think this discipline that you're talking about is just so so critical. And so I'm, I'm glad that you put that you know that perspective on the table. And and I'll just one more question on this this topic, which is fascinating to me personally. I, at the end of the, the day, what are are the you know the top capabilities that that you think a startup must have to survive and and get across that that goal line where ideally they you know they're purchased or they go they go public. Hmm. Well, since the question is around startups, I think there's really only one capability that actually matters, Mm -hmm. which is customer obsession. And I I know it sounds crazy to say this, but I'd argue that almost no founders that I talk to actually have this capability. And here's what I mean by that. Most founders, when I meet with them, they immediately tell me about their product features and what the product does. Mm -hmm. So everyone has fallen in love with their product. Almost no one has fallen in love with their customer and the problems of their customer. Yeah. And I think that that's the recipe for failure. That's why so many of our businesses fail. So if you think about, you know, what are the skills that you need to actually be a customer obsessed CEO? The first one is empathy. So you need to really deeply understand the customer's problems. And, and I don't, what I mean by that is not just like, what's the ROI of using your product? That's silly. What I'm talking about is understand who exactly is, is using the product? How severe is the problem that you're solving for them? Is it a nice to have or a must have? Mm-hmm. What alternatives do they have in place to solve the problem? How much would they be willing to spend to solve that problem? And you can, you can answer these questions by doing interviews. You can sit in a lot of sales calls. You can listen in to Zoom video, you know, gong recordings, Zoom calls. So, but a critical component of a founder is being deeply connected to and understanding and empathizing with your customers' needs. Yeah, yeah, that's huge. I mean, and and it really that resonates with me. And and, and just I'm going to apply it to what we do at TSIA here. You know, we have these research practices, and when we start them, we hire somebody who came from that area, right? So for, when we started you know, education services, we hired somebody who used to run an education services business in tech, right? Why? Because that person, in this case, Maria Manning Chapman, has unbelievable, you know, believable empathy and sympathy for anybody who's in that chair because she's been in that chair and she feels their pain. And that's true for every researcher we have. And it is a, a winning attribute. It is absolutely a winning attribute because they can relate to their customer and 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 really want to you know they I know where your, your problems are let me help you close that gap and so I yeah that just and, completely and resonates so with me. I so whole, wholeheartedly agree with that. And your approach is to hire in someone with that experience. As a founder, a lot of times you don't have that experience yourself, mm-hmm. so it is on you to acquire that empathy. But yeah. yourself, you cannot rely on anyone else. You have to <laughs> yeah. be the true owner of the comp- the customer's problem. Yeah, yeah. So the next thing is you have to be able to, in order to be customer, uh, customer obsessed, you have to be able to, de- to design a customer experience from end to end. So you need to be able to think through the entire customer's journey and see your company through their eyes. 
So in order to do that, you have to be able to do things like user testing. Obviously, I'm biased here, but you have to be able to yeah. use, you have to watch people use your website. You have to watch people use your product. Um, it means asking customers questions along their journey so that you understand: Are they getting value? Um, does the product match? what was promised by the sales team or on the website? Um, how easy will it be to justify the pricing? Are they considering any competitors? Does the product have all, have all the features that they want? You really have to be in the mindset of the customer and, and understand and quantify their experience so you can take quick action as a CEO where there's problems. So think about it like, think about a journey and you're scoring each step mm-hmm. making and, and you're making fine-tuned adjustments as your company scales. So what you just described there you know, is uh, I think in this theme of, you know, an effective digital customer experience from end to end, right? From, from you know, when I'm learning about the product to when I'm buying to when I want to do more to whatever, right? And there, there, we're working on a book right now that will come out this year called Digital Hesitation. And we have a chapter in there on digital customer experience. And, you know, our main assertion in that, or one of the assertions is that B2B companies are absolutely abysmal <laughs> at this capability. Right, where B two C is, you know, much much better, and I think the B two B companies are ju- we're just so stovepiped and disjointed in how we interact with the customer that we don't know what that journey really is, the way that you defined it, right? That we, we don't really know where the friction points are, but you know, our strong belief is that is that B two B companies are going to have to close that gap down. That that is going to be the difference between people that are just grabbing market share and people that look like dinosaurs in terms of how they're interacting with their customers. So, sorry, I would just jump on number two there, but I, I just, yeah, very simpatico. So many companies right now differentiate on experience as the main thing mm-hmm. and they're winning. A lot of them are winning, yeah. especially yeah. companies that have focused on building really great product experiences. Yeah, absolutely. So what's number three? Okay, so the third skill that you need to develop is around experimentation. The CEO has to be able to arm the team with the data that they need to make good decisions. So you need to be able to look at marketing and sales funnels, product usage data, click-through rates, conversion rates. And look, anyone can set up Optimizely or Pendo and start gathering you know, data and product usage data. The, the skill is setting up the guideposts about how decisions will be made and what success looks like. Mm-hmm. Because you can, you know, you have a lot of frantic CEOs that jump from idea to idea and they're trying to figure out product market fit. And no one knows what's going on because people don't know how decisions are made or what success looks like. So there's a scale around experimentation and looking at customer data and using that customer data intelligently and responsibly to guide your your startup through those first you know couple of years of decisions. So so it's really it's one capability, it's customer obsession. The three skills, empathy, experience, and experimentation. Yeah, I mean, I, I really appreciate you putting those on the table. And I, what I love about them is they, they are very universal. So I don't care what you're, what you're doing, right? whatever your technology is, whatever your market is, um, that those are, are capabilities that are going to help you regardless. So that's fantastic. So, so thanks for taking that, that, little, that little side trail. Let's, let's talk now about what you're doing, your current role, and, and you're the CEO at Nuffsed. And I believe that the theme at Nuffsed is customer-led growth. And, and so I, I'm very familiar with the term product-led growth, but less so with the term customer-led growth. So let's start there. What does that mean? Yeah, and if it's okay with you, I want to go a little bit deeper on this topic because um, sure. I think it will be very interesting for the audience. So, um, first, we we just launched a magazine that goes really deep into this topic. So, if you're interested, uh, go check out our magazine, nuffsed.com forward slash magazine. So, customer led growth 
is an operating mode where everyone at the company is obsessed about the value customers receive from the offering. That's it. Okay. We're all obsessed about the value. Specifically, in terms, in, in terms of actually implementing customer-led growth, it means that number one, you have to measure whether or not the customer has received value. So that's a combination of things. Was the planned outcome achieved? The thing that they bought you for, was that achieved, that result? And what does the customer believe the value was that they received? So it's both perception and mm -hmm. the actual outcome. Got it. Two, customer data becomes king. In other words, customer data is prioritized as the most important information for making key decisions at the company, like pricing, ideal customer profile, content roadmap, product uh, feature roadmap. Mm -hmm. Right now, today, most companies operate based on external data, opinions, this, what the CEO wants to accomplish. Customer data is almost never used to make these critical decisions. And then the final piece is they make outsized investments in their customer teams, which might sound a little bit counterintuitive in a world you just talked about, Thomas, where you're trying to get a company to rule a 40 and you're not spending mm -hmm. too much. Mm -hmm. So let's take a giant step back about why customer-led growth is matters in the first place. And we have to start with the incentives of the CEO. So the CEO's primary responsibility in the eyes of their investors is to increase company value. Correct. And of course they want to change the world, make the world a better place, but everything that investors care about is about increasing company value. And we talked about this before in the early days of SaaS, investors rewarded companies that grew very quickly, which created this sales and marketing led growth approach where companies were willing to spend in our case, a hundred percent of first year revenue to acquire new customers, crazy town. Right. Yeah, yeah. Also, because growth is all that mattered, no one was really paying attention to retention rates. And so these companies tended to have very high churn rates. Then, of course, Wall Street came and, and realized like, wow, it's too expensive to grow these companies. So they started rewarding companies that grew more efficiently. And from that emerged this product led growth approach, which is, you know, we know this, the model where value delivered from the product plus network effects allows companies to grow very quickly with minimal you know, product and uh, you know, sales and marketing investments. And also because users can try the product early on, once they try it and they like it, they're more likely to adopt it and the churn rates are much lower for these companies. Here's the rub. 95% of companies will never be product-led ever because they're missing the key ingredient that enables product-led growth, which is the product has to be stupid, simple to use, and customers have to get very high value with minimal effort. Mm -hmm. The reality of B2B products are there just aren't very many categories of products that are designed like that. So product-led growth just isn't an option for most of us. However, Wall Street is still valuing companies with low customer acquisition costs and high retention rates. In fact, I, mm -hmm. I recently looked and nine out of 10 public SaaS companies that I looked at are now reporting retention rates in their SEC filings. As they should be. As, as they should be. So because product-led growth is not possible for most companies, the solution to that is this customer-led growth model. By obsessing about the value that customers are receiving, it's a forcing function. It forces the company to achieve really good product market fit. From good product market fit leads to really good retention rates. And as the company increases its retention rates, it is much less expensive to acquire customers. It's way easier to 
to gain growth through customer advocacy because you've you've done a really good job of acquiring the right customers. And through customer-led growth, you end up reaching the low customer acquisition cost, high retention rate models that Wall Street is looking for right now. So, so a couple um, just playing back, right? And as, as I listen to you, the um, talked about investing, right, in, in customer facing roles and, and that can be expensive. But I think what I've heard there, I mean, there's a big difference in my mind in, in putting a bunch of dollars on, on sales reps to go knock down doors and get people on the, on the, you know, on the pile and they fall off the pile, right? As opposed to, let's say you're investing in customer success reps that are you know, focused on the adoption and the retention. And then as we all know, you know renewal dollar and expansion dollar is way cheaper than a net new dollar, period, end, end of report, right? So I don't think that's a paradox, right? You know, that, that in, in investment there. And, you know, I'm curious, because I, I want to click more in, into these examples here of customer-led growth, and I'm going to put more meat on the bone there. But I am just, again, as a side note here, you know, the, the environment that we're, we're going into, right, in, in terms of, you know, the economic environment, what's going on Wall Street could be different. And we're already seeing, you know, some of these, these companies that had high growth, but you know, terrible profitability are getting pummeled right now in valuation, pummeled, right? And so, so I mean, what are your thoughts? I mean, do you think this, this, you know, this sense of urgency around hey, show, show me your ability to acquire revenue more efficiently? Do you think that's going to get louder? Um, do you, do you think you know we're going to you know go back to the way it was? What, what's your what's your crystal ball on this? Well, if, if we look at the reasons why these companies are not profitable, it's probably because they've either overspent on customer acquisition and they don't have an engine to drive profitable future yeah. customer acquisition, or they've invested a massive amount of money in the R&D team. So product engineering, whatever, whatever you call mm -hmm. that teams, whatever you call mm -hmm. the team at your company. And they, um, despite having a huge team, don't have the capability to achieve real true product market fit. Mm -hmm. So rather than focusing the company early on on identifying that right, that right fit, you know, the right yeah. set of features, they're kind of scrambling now building all kinds of stuff for different use cases. They don't really know who they're building for. The team's too big. They're trying to make everybody happy. And now they've got this, you know, enormous product and engineering. Um, yeah. So, so, so what's, wh where, where are we headed? I mean, I think those companies are getting pummeled and they should be pummeled because Wall Street should be rewarding companies that have focused their business on true product market fit. And I think the mark, the metrics that we're using right now to determine product market fit are pretty good. Yeah. So what's our net retention rates? What's our profitability and what's mm -hmm. our overall growth rate. Yeah. And I think if, if we're looking at those, um, we can get a pretty good sense of like, okay, is this a healthy business that can grow uh, responsibly right. over the next five or 10 years? Yeah. So, so, you know, you're singing from my songbook here in terms of, you know, <laughs> because I mean, I, I think that that you know, what you're articulating to, to me just makes good business sense, right? And, and we've been on the square for a long time at TSA around, you know, when you talk about this next generation of tech companies as a service models, you know, SaaS companies, et cetera, you know, it's some, it's a game of musical chairs. At some point, the music stops and you have to sit down on a viable business model, right? You have to sit down on a viable business model. And so um, I think, you know, this could be a year where that, you know, conversation becomes, you know, real for a lot of these companies. But but I want to get back on customer-led growth. And again, I want to put more meat on the bone for, for the audience. And, and I want to talk about some of the tactics involved here. But just, 
help us out. Just give us some examples of, of B2B customer-led growth scenarios, just so we, you know, people understand you know, how this works. Great. Yeah, let's do that. And, and actually, the, the last point I wanted to make on the previous um, conversation item was that, you know, remember, you know, CEOs are value creation machines. And Bessemer recently did a study that showed the correlation between enterprise value and retention rates. Mm-hmm. And what they showed was that for each point of net retention rate improvement, you could increase company value by 0.7x. Mm-hmm. So a three-point improvement in NRR was a 2x in- increase in company value. Yeah. So, you know, again, if you're a CEO listening to this, you are a value creation machine. The shortest path to you increasing your company value right now is increasing your net retention rate. Sure. I'm really curious, actually, the TSI ends up doing a, a, a similar study. I'm curious what you'd find. But let's actually take this idea of customer-led growth, the concept of obsessing about the value that customers are receiving and using customer data to drive key business decisions. How does this actually work? Well, let's start with the product team because that's, you know, you know, we're coming from product-led growth as probably the, the closest comparison. Product has some key decisions that they need to make every day that are almost never informed by customer data. Decision number one is, when do I pay down technical debt? Right now, it's based on, honestly, a lot of it's based on how much engineering is complaining about technical debt. <laughs> Frankly, that's, that's actually how these decisions get made. And when the pain gets too high, product says, okay, fine, we'll, we'll, go, we'll go and fix this thing. We'll yeah. go fix it. <laughs> the, the, what we actually want to do is ask the customers along their journey, how have technical challenges affected your experience? That question needs to be the key driving factor of whether, when, and how we pay down technical debt. Because if, if something is bothering engineering, but has no impact on the customer experience, that needs to be prioritized much lower. Whereas something that doesn't bother engineering very much, but is really hurting the customer experience, that needs to be fixed immediately. The problem today is that decision is never made with customer data, which is crazy. We're making huge, and a lot of times, by the way, technical debt can take sometimes 30, 40, 50% of an engineering's total capacity. So we're, we're allocating mm-hmm. half of our R&D budget to pay off technical debt that has no correlation to customer experience. Crazy town. The next mm-hmm. set of decisions that product needs to make is around what features need to get built. So right now, if you know, we've interviewed a lot of product people recently. They kind of consider themselves, you know, that, you know, they kind of go up onto a mountain and, and the product God speaks to them and they have to take into account requests from the CEO, tech debt requests, bug and feature requests from customers, features. The sales team, of course, is complaining that they want certain things. And so they come down from the mountaintop from a tablet with the how the resources of the company will be allocated. The way that a customer-led growth company does this is they say, okay, first we ask customers, not what what tech, what features they want. We ask customers what problems they want to solve. We ask what the revenue impact would be of each feature that we could build. And we look at how many customers would be impacted by it. Almost no one in product has access to that data today. So we're making decisions based on gut feeling and the loudest person in the room or the loudest customer in the room not based on the impact that features would make on overall retention rates and revenue growth. I've got other use cases that I could share about sales and marketing, but maybe I'll pause on those two first. 
Yeah, yeah. So let's pause this because a thread that you're on here, and again, we are incredibly simpatico in our beliefs here that you know companies need to be more data driven. Whether it's how you know how product teams are making their decisions, how sales teams are making their decisions on where to allocate their time, how customer success organizations are making right. So, so one of the common challenges we see here is you know not all. Well, there's two, right? So, so challenge number one: Do they have the telemetry, right? That's number one, and and, and you're right. And historically, we did, you know, a lot of companies did not have it. Uh, the good news is, as you know, the world, you know, as, as, as we move forward here, more and more telemetry, better telemetry. That's a reality, right? And one of the messages we have to companies who have, you know, more dated technology and that are not prioritizing this telemetry on what customers are doing, we're saying again: Look, you you are going to look incredibly dated in about five or 10 years, your customers are going to be looking at you saying what you have no idea what I'm doing with, with your, with your technology. Right. So, so that's challenge number one. Let's get the spigot turned on. But, but the second challenge, which, which quite frankly, I'm seeing is almost more daunting <laughs> is, is a company's willingness to follow that data, to follow that data, right? So what you just described, right? So, you, you know, you go up into the mountain and you have to get the CEO to go, yeah, that's, that makes sense to me. And you got to get your top three customers or whatever. I mean, like you're going right, you got to get your, you know, your main sales, your, your biggest salesperson happy with, you know, your priorities, et cetera. So, so you're, you know, trying to navigate all these stakeholders, but if you basically have the data and you said, hey, you know, I, I've got some, I've got some bad news for you, CEO, <laughs> right? What you want is actually not aligned with what the data as a CEO, are you willing to take that on board? Right. And, and that is the second rub. So talk a little bit about how you get, you know, smart people, senior people, right. Willing to, to change the way they're operating and, and trust the data. And the next click over I want to talk about is are, are really the, you know, the analytics <laughs> that you're putting on top of the data. So, so how, how do you get people to shift yeah, well, you, you brought up two examples. There's the example of how do you get people at the company, so members of the team, how do you get them to believe in the, and use the customer data for decision-making? The other problem is, as a CEO, how do you adopt a decision that goes against what you believe, but it's in alignment with what the customers want? So both of these are, by the way, both of these are CEO problems. So the way, to, the way that to get the team aligned with making decisions uh, that that prioritize customer data first. It requires two things from the CEO. One is there has to be some customer value goal for the year. It's not NRR, increase NRR by three points because no one can connect with that. You have to have some goal around increasing the value that customers are receiving, which requires, to your point about telemetry, you have to be able to collect that data and report on it. So number one is the company, the whole company has to have a goal aligned around customer value. The second thing you can do, I guess, low-hanging fruit that you can do is tie executive team bonuses to net retention improvements. So make sure that they know that growth at all costs, that, that, that world is gone. The new world is growing efficiently and building a sustainable business. So that's, that's absolutely part of that equation. The third thing that CEOs need to do is set up a framework for how decisions are made in the company. Specifically, what you need to do is let the team know what data, what's the hierarchy of data in the company. And the things that you need to account for are how much, how much weight do you put on personal experience and opinions? How much weight do you put on a team opinion? So how much consensus? 
how much value are you going to place on credible external data, right? So-and-so report shows that 50 out of 100 companies are building their front-end architectures on some new language. How much weight are you going to put on that? And the last thing is customer data. How much weight does that get? So the decision, internal decision-making processes have to stack rank the data. And you actually have to say, where does customer data rank relative to opinions? Because guess what? If the decision-making decision process says that customer data is king, that means that me as the CEO, I can't overrule customer data because I've already defined that customer data is more value than individual opinion, including the CEOs. Yeah, and the reason that I was, I was you know, poking at that, right, in, in talking about this, this challenge is, I mean, we see this all the time for what we do for a living is, you know, we do a lot of industry benchmarking and we know what good looks like and we know when companies are, are, are not close to that. And it's amazing, right? When you deliver that message and I've done it myself, I've seen my researchers do it. And, and, and the higher you get it up in the food chain, right? Is actually the more likely that that audience will say, okay, that's really interesting, but, but we're special, <laughs> you know, we're a snowflake. We're, you know, that, I'm not really sure that really applies to us. Right. And you're like, well, no, I'm telling you, I mean, you are so far off the mark here. It does apply to you. Right. Here's the three things you need to do to fix it. And so it's the same conversation. And so, you know, but what you're articulating, right, the, these deep held beliefs and philosophies that we are going to follow the data and we're going to prioritize around that. And that is going to trump, you know, personal, you know, opinion or the squeakiest wheel is, is a, you know, a critical capability. Right, it's a critical philosophy, and and I think again in these business models moving forward, right, and, and let's again turn the clock back, you know, to you know 10, 15 years ago, it was always about you know the inspirational you know CEO or product visionary who said I you know I've got this new you know the new awesome widget and it's going to be so you know killer, um, and I just I know this is what the customer wants. And that was, you know, a, a winning persona, right? A, a, a winning play to a world was like, look, man, you know, we got to be very committed to the customer and we got to follow the data. Data is going to, you know, this constant closed loop helping us, you know, course correct. We have a good idea. You know, we have, we believe there's a market opportunity, but we've got to follow the data if we're really going to be successful in that market. It's a, it's a different, you know, different philosophy. Yeah, and I think, by the way, at user testing, we also thought we were a snowflake. So for what, for what it's worth, <laughs> I would have said the same thing to you. Having, yeah, having said right. that, investors, I think, what, I think your point is, investors don't care if you're a snowflake. Right. They, right. they, they just don't. Yeah, less, you're right. part of a benchmark. Right. They want to see certain numbers. Right. And if you don't hit those numbers, you're going to take the valuation hit. Right. So you can ignore the benchmarks right. all you want, but that's going to come at the cost right. of how your company is valued in the eyes of investors. And there's nothing you can do about it. Yeah, and those metrics of success, you know, what they're focused on is shifting. That's the other key point, you know, discussing earlier, right? So, you know, so, so you put those two things uh, together. I think that, there, you know, there's a different level of accountability there. Yeah. So, again, I mean, getting employees, you know, companies to follow the data, um, the, the insights that come from it, I, I think is critical. I want to go back to some of these examples, and I do want to poke on sales because that's another you know, area that, that, you know, we, we have some really aggressive assertions here. I mean, we, we, we believe again, that the cost of sales and marketing for a lot of these next generation tech companies is unsustainable. Number one, number two, we believe very strongly that sales is going to have to become a much more data-driven organization. 
it is gonna to have to be leveraging data and analytics to prioritize, right? What they chase, what they don't chase. Um, and, and we just don't see that very often in the wild. So, so talk about some of those. Sure. So let's talk about um, maybe the one that harms the company the most, which is how sales okay. qualifies potential customers. There's a lot of talk in the market about different qualification techniques. You hear about BANT, you hear about MEDIC, right? right? There's, there's three or four other ones that have popped up recently. Yep. But those qualification criteria have nothing to do with your current customers, their use cases, and how they receive value. Isn't that crazy? Mm -hmm. Our sales teams are qualifying our potential customers with no consideration of our current customer base. So uh, the way that a customer-led growth does this is they think about how can they arm SDRs with the use cases that create the highest net retention rates. So you can look at segmentation criteria like customers who use, I'm going to make up some things, customers customers Mm -hmm. who use Gmail are three times more likely to renew or customers who have purchased software before, this type of software before, end up getting way more value or companies that have a chief experience officer are more likely to be able to increase budget over the course of the years. In a customer-led growth company, you're doing a lot of segmentation on your customer base and you're taking your understanding and your knowledge of how customers have received value and you're feeding it back to the sales team. So they're not doing the majority of their qualification based on whether or not someone has budget, authority, need, and timing. You're mm-hmm. actually asking, does, will is this customer likely to receive maximum value based on who they are, what their use case is, their, their role, the size of the company? You're looking at factors that have actually impact, impacted the customer experience. That's one example of how customer-led growth operates differently. Another thing that you hear all the time from a post-sale team, my sales team keeps overselling deals, right? Mm -hmm. And the reason for that is sales often gets really poor product training. In fact, a lot of times it's not the sales team's fault, right? They're trained a certain way and then they go out and sell what they're told to sell. Sometimes changes happen in the product that they aren't kept up to date on either. So the result is, and, and, and by the way, customer success and account management, they often complain about overselling, but I think underselling is equally as dangerous of a problem. So what you have to do um, from, a, uh, from a sales perspective is you have to arm the sales team with use cases and stories from existing customers that they can use as part of their sales process. You want to be able to sell uh, prospective customers on a vision of how the product will be used, the value that was experienced by other customers, and, and help pitch a, a world where the customer is operating with the product fully implemented and the value being fully realized. And then the last use case here is around outbound communication to customers. So who decides today what communication gets to customers? Well, it's frankly, most of our our emails to customers are written by very junior SDRs that don't have a good understanding of who our customer is, or it's written by a sales enablement team or marketing team. But in any case, emails to customers are written by people who don't talk to customers ever, which is crazy. So a customer-led growth company uh, creates content that comes from customer stories and success cases. Customers love to hear stories about others who have achieved value how the product was used, how the product was shared internally, what the reason was for the purchase initially, and, and what got them to buy in the first place. So in a customer-led growth company, 
outbound emails come from customer stories, not from SDRs or sales enablement or marketing. Yeah. And so the one follow-up question I had is getting salespeople to lean in to that data. Because, you know, one thing I've seen is even when the tools get in place, right, where there now is telemetry that is being served up to a sales team and they're saying, look, here's what we think you should be focused on, right? Here's the, you know, the customer or the profile type that they still want to default to, to their traditional approach, right? The, the way they want to qualify or where they think, you know, the, the, the hot, you know, customer is. So um, have you seen any, you know, how, how do you get sales teams to turn the bend? <laughs> yeah. Right? And, and really, yeah, lean into using the data. Sales is the easiest team on the planet to manage because you know exactly how they're going to react to requests. They are incentivized to maximize their personal income. So if you tie activity to income, behavior will change. It's that easy for sales. So if we say to a customer, look, we want to start using these different outbound uh, email stories. We want to start qualifying customers differently. And oh, by the way, for every customer that you close that hits these criteria, these qualification criteria, you're going to make an extra thousand dollar bonus on that deal. Guess what? You're going to start seeing a lot of very qualified, very highly qualified deals come through the pipeline. So for sales, the solution is always easy. Tie compensation to the behaviors that you want, and you will see exactly what you want from the sales team. By the way, some people have even gone as far as implementing uh, a quota, sorry, a, a commission structure that is partially based on the deal closing up front, and they get a kicker at the renewal in, in a year. So they get this, you know, as they stick around at the company and build up a book of business, they get this nice stream of revenue that continues as the customer renews over the years. Perfect. That, that, very helpful. Because again, I think, uh, and I agree with you. I mean, I think uh, sales is in, in many ways the easiest te team to, to pivot, right? To, um, because of their, their focus. But I think it's still something you have to do consciously. That's right. Right. To get them. That's right. Into the That's day. right. Totally. So, um, so the next question I, is the last one I wanted to put on the table, Chris. So, um, and this is around futures, right? So, so, you know, again, I think we're still relatively early days on, on telemetry uh, with that telemetry, we're putting more sophisticated tools around it in terms of, of AI to, to help say, Hey, this is again, we're here's where the there, there is. Um, but where does this go in your mind? What, what do you see as some of the real potential for customer-led growth and, and, and these types of approaches? Well, yeah, so there's, there, well, there's customer-led growth and then there's AI. So, so mm -hmm. enough said, I mean, we're, we're an AI company, mm -hmm. um, but, you know, I think maybe it would be useful to talk through an example of how AI evolves and how it helps us make better decisions. So I have a ring camera system at home, right? Owned by Amazon and um, it has a bunch of intelligent intelligence features. And one of them is the ability to get alerts when the system detects a person in the video feed. So without that feature, I would have to manually scan through all of my videos every day. But with the feature turned on, I have about a minute summary of everyone that came to the house every day. Mm -hmm. So the power of AI is not about taking over your job or telling you what to do. The power of AI is to be an intelligent assistant who works within the boundaries that you set for it uh, and help you to accomplish an enormous amount of work if you had to do it manually. So if, if we go through 
you know, some of the different departments, you know, and how AI could impact them. You know, for customer success, it's telling, asking your assistant to go find customers who are at risk right now. It's about automating communication with the customer based on their behavior with the company. It's preparing order forms, very time consuming. It's um, organizing onboarding. It's uh, automating some of the QBR content that needs to be generated. So just a ton of work that that you that CS the customer success team does today that doesn't need to be done by a human. It's be way simpler if it was done by an AI. For sales, it's about gathering relevant information about prospects before you talk to them. Go have your assistant learn about a person. Mm-hmm. It's about ranking deals based on probability of closed, based on everything that's seen in the history of the company. It's about preparing your weekly forecast report so you don't have to waste time doing manual data entry in Salesforce. It's about data hygiene so you don't have to manually log activity in Salesforce, which of course every salesperson hates. Um, for engineering, it's about figuring out what tickets they need to work on first based on other system dependencies, other things that other engineers are working on. It's about autofilling common code snippets and function names. It's about writing unit tests for you automatically. It's about detecting when an engineer is stuck or needs help. So the potential for AI in the near term is creating these really powerful assistants that help us get out of the, the weeds of doing these rote, time-consuming, low-value tasks. Yeah, and as I listen to you, again, in the tech industry, and we have come a long way, and you know, we do these conferences every six months, and, and, and companies are presenting on, you know, hey, this is how we're doing, you know, pr- pr- predictive support, you know, and this is how we're doing, um, you know, something new and managed services for customers. And, and so, I mean, the technology, you know, continues to evolve, and, and in some ways, it's, it's really wicked cool, yet... As I as I listen to you, the reality is within our tech business models, there is still there's a lot of labor on low value add activities. The ones you just rattled off, right? And I think I agree with you. They are all ripe, you know, to, to have you know new models applied so that those you know again it's not replacing their jobs. Those people can now add way more value to the company and to the customer by not having to muck around you know, with, with, with that type of activity. So yeah, I appreciate the perspective. That's, well, yeah, that's I, exactly I really, how I see it. Yep. Yeah. So, so I really, uh, you know, appreciate you coming in today. This concept of customer led growth, I think is, is, is spot on again in this, 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 you know, journey of, of really optimizing our tech business models. And the way I like to end these, these episodes is with the big question of the day. And so from the TSI perspective, you know, spending 40, 50, 60% of revenue on sales and marketing is, is unsustainable, period. And more importantly, it will be frowned upon if the capital markets tighten. So the question of the day is, what is your strategy to grow revenue more cost-effectively? Thanks for listening, folks. Thanks, Chris, for coming in. Cheers. Cheers.